0: You're going to have to bear with me a little bit this morning. If you're listening on the podcast, I'm not preaching with my nose closed. I just sound like this. Um, This morning we are in week two of our Lenten series, Redeemed. And our story obviously has to be one of the most familiar in all of scripture. Think back to when you had kids or when you were a kid I bet somewhere in the recesses of every toy box was a Noah's Ark set of some kind, right? I was searching for a picture of the Noah's Ark set that I remembered from my childhood. And do you know where I found the picture? Under vintage toys. <laughs> <laughs> Vin- vintage toys? Real, I, was so, I was so upset I don't even have the picture for you this morning. Vintage toys. I digress. Uh, Point being that lots of us, even if uh, if you didn't grow up in the church, you probably know the story of Noah's Ark. And if you did grow up going to Sunday school, rest assured you had Noah's Ark flannel graph coming out your ears, right? It's such a fun story to engage kids with. A bunch of animals on a boat. Kids love animals. Kids love boats. It's a great thing. And I'm sure that this message would be a lot more fun this morning if I had flannel graph up here. But you're just going to have to listen with your ears like the adults that you are or the adults that you pretend to be. (laughs) How many of you in here saw the Hollywood epic that came out five years ago called Noah starring Russell Crowe? Okay, a bunch of you saw it. Okay. If you knew nothing of the story of Noah, it was a pretty good movie. It was one of those big cinema, big soundtrack, epic intensity kinds of movies. If you know the story of Noah and you were hoping that the movie and the Bible story were closely linked, you were a little out of luck there. But it's church. It's, not, it's Hollywood. It's not the church. So it is what it is. But I did, I did appreciate a couple of lines from that. I did appreciate that Noah narrated the creation story. And I appreciated that he narrated what we call the fall, the story of Adam and Eve, which we talked about last week. And in the movie, Noah reminds us that God gave them a choice. And he says, follow the temptation of darkness or hold on to the blessing of light. And then he continues on to explain the consequences of the choices that Adam and Eve made when they let go of the blessing of perfect unity with God and with one another and instead followed the temptation of darkness. And Noah says in the movie, So, for ten generations since Adam, sin has walked with us. Brother against brother, nation against nation, man against creation. We broke the world. We did this. Everything that was beautiful, everything that was good, we shattered. And this was one extraordinarily important detail that I think Hollywood got right. We did this. Everything that was beautiful, Everything that was good, we shattered. It was Noah's explanation for why they were sitting in the middle of the ark as the world around them was overrun by this great flood. In addition to two of every kind of living thing, Noah and his wife and their three sons and their three wives were the only ones in all of the world to survive the flood that God designed and used to wipe out all of creation. It's a story we talk a lot about with kids, but we kind of stop talking about it as adults, probably because the older we get, the more problematic this story becomes to us. At some point in our journey of faith, as we study scripture more and more, we have to face the reality that God sent a flood upon the earth that literally wiped out the entirety of the creation that he had just made and deemed good. Good. For those of you who already know how the story ends, we know that God used this chaos to bring about brand new life, that God used the chaos of the waters to bring about something new, something beautiful, something better than what it was. And in the same way that we'd rather skip Lent and jump right to Easter, this is the part of the Noah story that we like to jump to because it's this image of of calm and serenity that the dove comes back with an olive branch in its mouth and a rainbow lights up the once dark sky as a reminder of God's promises. That's the part that we really love to talk about, right? And yet we know that so much of life is lived really in between the two, in the chaos, in the mystery, in the questions, in the flood. And so we have to ask, why? Why did God do it? Why did God cause such devastating destruction upon that which he claimed to love so much? So this is a very, very richly debated question. One that we may not answer in its entirety this morning, but we're going we're gonna to give it a try nonetheless. This is another one of those, uh, those words, those phrases for which the Hebrew does not have an adequate English translation. So the text pretty much spells out the reality that the major issue that led up to this watery chaos was the wickedness of the human heart and the behaviors that stemmed from it. Genesis 6.11 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. So the Hebrew word for violence here is actually a really generic term. In Hebrew, this word can mean something from International war to general social justice issues. It can mean an individual act of violence and it can mean a corporate act of violence. It can mean a physical violence, it can mean a psychological violence. It's an incredibly general term in Hebrew. But while that is a very general word, we do know that sinful humanity was so advanced in its sin that it had reached every single corner of civilization kind of its sinful apex, so to speak, and God was grief-stricken over it. Human sin and human suffering was out of control. It was bad enough that Adam and Eve had chosen to follow temptation, but one decision changed the entire trajectory of humanity from that which God intended for us to that which we chose for ourselves. Where God had created us for good and for unity, instead humanity chose sin and division. In doing so, we shattered everything about the world that was once good and beautiful. We so often look at God in the Old Testament and we deem him wrathful, murderous, vengeful, and angry because something was destroyed. When in reality, we have such a small window. We have such a small window into the bigger picture of what God is doing. We have no idea what brand new thing God might bring about from what feels like destruction to us. And if we take God's unrelenting love for us out of the equation and turn these stories into formulas, which we often try to do, we lose sight of the whole picture of who God is. When we try to fit God into some kind of formula, we are desperately limiting God. And we do that because we want to make sense of things that we cannot make sense of, because we do not have all of the information. There's no doubt that Noah experienced the destruction of the world in an absolutely gut-wrenching way. He was human. I have no doubt that he asked the same questions of God that many of us have asked in the face of our own painful tragedy. Is God really good? Why did this have to happen? Was this really the only way? We are grieved by the thought that God would seemingly so carelessly wipe out the entirety of creation in a flood. And yet we are grieved in part because we think that this kingdom is the only one of which we will be a part, this one here on earth. But we have to understand the reality of God's grief as well. That what he once made and called good was destroyed and it broke the very heart of God. The word that is translated here in this text for grieved Or in the New Testament, it uses the phrase filled with pain. This is the word that is used to express the most intense emotion. Sometimes anguish, sometimes rage mixed with anguish. It's the word that was used when the brothers of Dinah were trying to describe how they felt after they learned that she had been raped. It's the word that is used to express Jonathan's emotion when he found out that his father had planned to kill his best friend, David. It's the same word that was used when David learned of the death of his favorite son, Absalom. And understanding God's grief for humanity's sin is the only way that we can come to know God at all. Human sin and separation is the thing that grieves the heart of God the most, This is why these stories are are so important in helping us to understand why Easter is such an incredible celebration, because first we have to understand our need for it. So what happened next? In his grief over sin, God flooded the entire earth and wiped out every living thing, except for those that were in the ark with Noah. Noah. And the next thing that happens once the earth dries up, Noah and all of his family and all of the animals come out of the ark. And then once that happened, God uses this language of covenant or promise for the very first time in scripture. Now we live in a culture where promises seem to mean very little, don't we? Think of all the promises that our politicians make to us every time they're running for office of any kind. Or the promises that are made on wedding days, which are now upheld less than half of the time in our country, whether you're a Christian or not. Or as a result of a culture of broken promises, we create a new culture where promises are never made, where people don't see the need to make marriage marriage vows to one another, where we don't stay in a job longer than two years, where when we give our word to someone, people expect very little of it. We live in a world of broken promises, and I think the more broken our world becomes, the more difficult it is for us to understand God. Back to Noah. We always talk about 40 days and 40 nights that the rains came, but it was actually almost an entire year before the water had subsided enough that the earth was once again habitable. And so in order to determine when it was time to get off the ark, Noah sent out a raven. In ancient days, raven navigators, the navigator birds, would be sent out to find land. And so Noah wasn't using the bird to find land by a way of trying to figure out where he wanted to go. He was sending the bird out to find out if land was ready for animals and humans to inhabit it. Well, ravens eat dead animals, and so the raven just flew around and around and around over the water with nothing to eat. And so next, Noah decided to send out a dove. And doves don't have the ability to fly back and forth over the water for endless amounts of time. They have a limited ability for sustained flight. And they live at lower elevations. And so instead of eating animals, they require plants in order to survive. So when the dove comes back to the ark with an olive branch in his mouth, Noah knows because in order for the dove to have found an olive leaf, it means that enough time had passed so that an entire olive tree could have grown. It told Noah all that he needed to know about how much the water had subsided, and it told him that new life had begun. He waited another week, and then he sent the dove back out, and the dove never returned, and he knew it was time. And so Noah offered a burnt sacrifice to God, And God said to Noah, never again. Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. And then he says in Genesis 9, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you the birds and the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth? So this is a big deal. This is God revealing yet another significant part of God's character. God is making a commitment, a promise, a covenant, not just to Noah, but to all of humanity. That from that point on, we see God as a maker of promises. And from that point on, we see a picture of a God who is faithful to the promises that he has made. In this passage, he uses the word covenant, just in this passage. He uses the word covenant seven times. Seven times in this little passage. It's the Hebrew word berit. Berit, which is literally translated covenant. So God made this berit, this covenant, this promise that he will never again do what he just did. He will never again drown the entire world in a flood. He will never again destroy all of humanity and every living being within it. The fact that God uses this word seven times in this passage should not be taken lightly. God is saying that he will establish this, that he will do it now, immediately, and that he has already done it. Another way of saying this is that a covenant from God is something that points to an already completed reality. So when God says that never again will he do what he just did, that promise is already fulfilled. It's already done. Consider it done, Noah. Why would that be important, particularly for Noah in that moment? For a couple of reasons. Think about it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it must have been like the first time that Noah saw rain after it flooded. So many scholars say that Noah, prior to the flood, had never seen rain before, that rain didn't yet exist on the planet, that God had essentially created this kind of uh, water vapor canopy across the planet, which created this tropical environment everywhere, which sounds real great right about now, (laughs) that the ultraviolet rays of the sun were filtered out so that people could live to be a 1,000 years old, as they did in that time. And then it wasn't until the flood broke through that that canopy, that water poured down, that the flood happened. But now, in his new world, rain is going to be a part of the system of our ecology. Rain will regularly fall. It will be evaporated up into the ocean. It will go into the clouds. And then it will come down about the land around the rivers until it runs back into the sea and the cycle continues. God would take what was destructive and make it useful and beautiful for life to sustain. But Noah didn't know that yet. So if Noah had never seen rain before, and then the very first time he saw rain, it destroyed the whole entire earth and everything in it, then you can imagine Noah just strolling along the beautiful earth when a drop of rain hits, and then another drop of rain hits. He'd probably freak out, right? And so God uses the word of covenant over and over and over again to remind Noah that it is already done. The promise is already fulfilled. Never again will God destroy the earth. Noah doesn't have to panic when it rains. He doesn't have to keep up maintenance of the ark just in case. Worldwide devastation will never again come at the hand of God. And then God seals the covenant with a sign. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all earth. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. So God sends a rainbow over the earth as a sign to Noah of the covenant that he has made. And the idea is that Noah... And for all generations after him, that every time we see a rainbow in the sky, we are to remember the promise that God has made to us, to remember the faithfulness of the God who made it. So that's the happy ending that we were waiting for, right? And I love that. I love love looking for rainbows after a good rain. I love the way the sky looks when it's really dark in one spot and then it begins to lighten up in another one. I love the search for the rainbow. I love that God's promise to us remains. But I want to look again at what the Hebrew word says here because it's an important one. The Hebrew word that that God uses when he's talking about the rainbow, I maybe have mentioned this before. He uses this Hebrew word, kesheth. In Hebrew, it is the word for bow, as in bow and arrow, bow. So in Exodus 15, it says, the Lord is a warrior. In Habakkuk 3, it says that the the Lord's bow is made bare. In Zechariah 9, it says that his arrows are lightning. Throughout the Old Testament, God is sometimes depicted as a warrior with a bow. So in this Genesis narrative, God is essentially saying that the rainbow is a sign that God is hanging up his bow. God has hung up his bow And he hung it up right there in the sky for everyone to see, for everyone to remember the faithfulness of God, that the God who makes promises keeps his promises. He is hanging up his bow. He is done with destruction. There's an author by the name of Stephen Richards who said that promises are only as strong as the person who gives them. So in our culture, that doesn't say a whole lot. We more and more value and sadly are often surprised when we come across people of great integrity If you have someone in your life that exhibits great integrity, someone who does what she says she's going to do, that's the kind of person you want in your life, right? And yet it often seems as if that kind of person is becoming more and more a rare commodity. And yet if that author is correct that promises are only as strong as the one who gives them, then we can be certain that the promises of God hold firm forever. It's tough for us to believe And as our society gets further and further away from God and away from the things of God, it becomes more difficult to believe or trust that God would keep his promises because we just don't see too many examples of that happening in the world around us. Because we know that Noah, righteous as he may have been, was not without sin. And as we keep reading that narrative, we know that within five seconds of being back on dry land, Noah sins again. And the cycle just continues on. But God has made his promise. It's the other reason why this covenant and this covenant language is so significant. Because if the first drops of post-flood rain didn't completely panic Noah, then certainly his realization that sin followed him into this new world would. But seven times... Seven times God reiterates that he would never again destroy creation. And so every time Noah saw a rainbow throughout the rest of his life, and every time we see one, even to this day, it is our reminder not of God's judgment, but of God's mercy and grace. It is a sign of God's faithfulness. It is our reminder that despite what we deserve, we receive mercy instead. That instead of destruction, God hung up his bow. And so instead of death, we receive life. It's a sign that God does not forget his promises. We cannot allow our culture of broken promises to keep us cynical and in disbelief that we serve a God who never fails. Now, we know it doesn't mean that in this life, even with God, that this life is without brokenness. Most of us know that very well. But we have the ability and the invitation to trust in a God who makes and keeps his promises. The promise that God made to Noah that day was not just for Noah and it was not just for Noah's family. It was for all people across all of time. And we have just begun to see the promises of God. Next week, we're going to talk about another promise that was made that was so absurd that it made Abraham laugh out loud. So stay tuned for next week. But be reminded this week that in a culture that continues to fail, we have a God who never does. That in the face of a world of broken promises, God reminds us that everything that is broken here, hard as it is, and I know it's hard, but one day, one day it will all be made whole and new again. Every broken promise, every broken body, every broken spirit, all made new. The more we understand our need for a savior, the greater our Easter celebration is going to be. And I think it's going to be a great Easter celebration this year. The promises of God are true. They are real. They are forever. And they are for you. Let's pray. God, sometimes it's difficult for us to understand What it is that you're up to when we know that we can't see the whole picture. And so, God, as adults, it's difficult to hear this story about you having created all of these things that were beautiful and good and then you destroyed them all. God, we know that sin grieves your heart and we know that it keeps us away from you. God, help us to remember that you are the God who makes promises. That into total destruction and chaos, God, you bring beauty and you bring goodness and that is what you continue to do, not just in the story of Noah, but that is what you do in our own lives. That into our own brokenness and into our own chaos, you reach in and you make something beautiful and you make something good as only you can. And so Lord, for whoever it is that needs to hear that this morning, would you remind us that there is nothing that is too broken in us, nothing that is too chaotic in us No part of us that is too far away from you, that you can't reach us. And so God, as you continue to do the work of making all things new, God, may we boldly be a part of that, that we would see your kingdom come even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.